Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized. Until today. I'm Cher Martinetti, and this is Sci-Fi Wire Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. Mindy Newell is regarded as the first woman writer of some important female-led solo books in the DC universe, including a few names you just might have heard of, like Lois Lane, Catwoman, and Wonder Woman. In the 80s and 90s, she developed an impressive resume of stories, featuring her trademark brooding stylism paired with bleak subject matter. It should have placed her alongside many of the early Vertigo writers. But it didn't. She hasn't written comics in years, and has all but disappeared from critical and historical accounts at the time. Between 1985 and 1990, Newell wrote a lot of comics for DC, from the Green Lantern Corps to the Legion of Superheroes, before she left the company forever. She returned to comics briefly in the mid-1990s to do a little editing and writing backups for Marvel, before choosing to leave the industry yet again. Newell did a lot of important work, but was never given enough time or creative control over a series to create a definitive arc which is partially why it's so frustratingly difficult to try and recommend a good entry point with Newell's writing. There kind of isn't one. But once you're in it, you're sure to find some secret gems. In most comic book histories, she appears as little more than a footnote. Yet this is the writer that gave us our first glimpses of what a contemporary feminist take on Wonder Woman, Lois Lane, or Catwoman would read like. This arguably helped to bring us to the modern age, where Catwoman has stepped up as the misunderstood antihero we always knew her to be. I am Catwoman. Hear me roar. Newell's stories managed to approach subjects like women fleeing abusive men and the kidnapping and murder of children while somehow passing through the censorship of the comics code undetected. Despite her struggles with creative control, Newell's work reads back as much more feminist than was generally allowed in mainstream comics. But despite all of this, her work is seldom recollected or written about. And it's occasionally even erased by unknowing writers. Minnie Newell's work and legacy matter to the future comics just as much as they did to its past. Newell's a Brooklyn girl, born in 1953, and she went to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to study to become a nurse at a high school. She was a longtime fan of superhero comics, having rekindled an interest in them during her long shifts as an RN. In 1983, DC Comics had announced that they were on the hunt for new talent. The company had seen fluctuating sales for some time and was looking for new directions, like you do. This hiring period led to the development of a lot of DC's most important writers, 
Newell being one of them. Within a few short years, the company would be releasing much more interesting books, and women began appearing in creative roles behind the scenes much more prominently. DC's standard, buoyant, sci-fi-influenced superhero stories took on a significantly darker tone, and they began to appeal to a larger adult audience that had more or less checked out after Batman 66 nearly 20 years prior. Newell submitted a few story ideas, and four days later, she was contacted by editor Karen Berger, which is possibly one of the most surprisingly easy stories of breaking into comics we've ever heard. But that good luck was not to last. But for the time being, things were looking pretty good. Berger, for her part, would go on to play a hugely important role in the creation of DC's legendary Vertigo line. And I felt that bringing an outsider's perspective was an advantage because I could sort of look at the stories that writers were were pitching me and say, hey, you know what? I've kind of heard that before. That sounds kind of generic. That sounds kind of conventional. Why don't we try to do something different? And people seem to respond to that. As for Newell, honestly, she was surprised to even be approached for work. She didn't have much of a writing background, so it seemed like a dream come true. Now, we all know it's unlikely that Newell was the first female writer of Wonder Woman, though she is the first credited female writer of Wonder Woman. There's been a lot of speculation that Elizabeth, the wife of creator William Moulton Marston, was not just a scripter, but even the co-creator of Wonder Woman herself. Joy Hummel, who began turning in Wonder Woman scripts while she was still in her late teens, was only recently credited for her work. And both DC editor Dorothy Woolfolk and the Price of Salt author Patricia Highsmith are believed to have turned out many Wonder Woman scripts after Marston left the book. It's nearly impossible to say who wrote what scripts exactly as mainstream comics seldom featured creator credits during the 40s and 50s. Still, there have been many accounts to support these women as early writers of Wonder Woman before a notoriously conservative edge overtook the series in the mid-1950s. This era saw the rise of the self-censoring board known as the Comics Code Authority, the comic book counterpart to Hollywood's Hayes Code. Wonder Woman had already been targeted by critics specifically for encouraging BDSM and lesbianism claims which have led to attempts by editorial to distance her from those elements of her character up to this very day. In the late 1970s, writer Denny O'Neill had depowered Diana Prince, and the creative team had pushed a bizarre kung fu-influenced plotline that lasted way too long and featured a Wonder Woman that was about as far away from her already dubious feminist origins as she could possibly be. Derided by many feminists, including Gloria Steinem, for depowering one of their favorite heroes, DC backtracked by eventually returning Wonder Woman's powers, and the series eventually drew to a close after a long stint of pretty unfeminist stories. Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman. All the world is waiting for you and the power you possess. Around that same time, Wonder Woman was set to feature its first woman editor, the feminist. Dorothy Woolfolk. Having done a stint editing Lois Lane, Woolfolk and her socially-minded direction led many longtime fans to cry her work in the letter columns. When male editors at DC decided that Woolfolk's feminism justified bad treatment from her peers, she was undermined and eventually fired from the job. Robert Kaniger was given her position, and one of his early issues editing Wonder Woman features an analog of Woolfolk appearing on page only to be shot in the head by a sniper. Not a great look for DC's flagship feminist title. 
This is the environment female comic creators were working in during the late 70s into the early 80s. Back then, uh, I'd go to shows where I'd be the only girl at the show, which is, is not an exaggeration and it's not exceptional woman syndrome. I mean, it's literally go to a show, you'd be the only girl there. In 1985, when Nua was given a job writing Wonder Woman, it was a huge deal. The character has long been touted as a complicated feminist icon whose early issues are rife with racist caricatures and whose bizarre male-defined feminism has been minimized until it seemed almost non-existent. On the other hand, the symbolism of the character and the specific interpretations have given us one of the world's most easily identifiable female icons. Avatars are important to cultural development, and Wonder Woman has influenced millions of people over the course of decades. Folks, this is one legacy that is all over the damn place. And no matter who you are, it'll make you feel some kind of way. Newell clashed with the character. She felt she was a lesbian and was confused as to why she wasn't written as such. Beyond that, Newell couldn't stand Steve Trevor's overwhelming presence in Diana's character arcs, dating back to her very first appearance. Trevor might be cute today, but after a good 40 years of comics that were pretty much just him walking all over Wonder Woman's adventures, you can't really blame Newell for being a tad bit over it. The pro-choice Newell also felt that Diana's naivete would lead her to be pro-life, which did not sit particularly well with her own moral compass. While she was excited to work on an iconic character, Wonder Woman was pretty much the last character she'd have chosen to write if given the option, proving that success is a pretty mixed bag. Besides that, even in comparatively recent interviews, Newell has gone into some depth on how she clashed with the editor and looks back with some embarrassment on her first Wonder Woman story. According to Newell, editor Alan Gold was completely unwilling to hear her ideas. He even forced in a loosely assembled story based in Aztec mythology, which certainly has not aged well. The story featured a great deal of ethnic stereotyping as well as a white-centric misunderstanding of an ancient culture. And it didn't benefit from having Newell as the scriptwriter due to the overpowering presence of an intrinsically bad plot. This animosity quickly led to Newell quitting, coming back to finish out the issues planned, then leaving the book again. She returned dozens of issues later to team up with artist and plotter George Perez during a run that is now considered by many longtime Wonder Woman fans as legendary. The better work environment is obvious. Newell speaks much more kindly of Perez, who, despite having creative control, was far more open to ideas. Newell worked on issues number 36 to 46 and number 49 of Wonder Woman in Volume 2, an arc that saw a much more empowered take on Diana than had been seen in recent years. Or, you know, ever. George Perez told Sci-Fi Wire, I was listening to the pitch and seeing that almost every female worker at DC was not particularly happy with the direction they were going to be going. And I was thinking of what was going on at DC since the Crisis on Infinite series of what was being done with Superman, what was being done with Batman. And I always felt that, you know, that she was, as far as recognition, on a par with them. You know, most people would know Wonder Woman by name. Besides her work on Wonder Woman, Nuba played a major part in some outlying DC titles. She had co-scripted tales of the Legion of Superheroes with Keith Giffen, who she again partnered with later for the second and third volumes of the underrated feminist fantasy story, Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. Not to mention guesting on major books like Action Comics. Newell has alluded to some disappointment with her first Catwoman story as well. Catwoman had been redefined by Frank Miller in Batman Year One to be a former sex worker who escaped her abusive pimp before eventually becoming an expert cat thief. 
swearing to herself that she would never be accountable to any man again. While this theoretically could be an empowering story for sex workers, the reality is it did not paint Selena Kyle in a flattering light. And by using oppressive language and graphic violence against her repeatedly throughout his many several Batman stories, Miller created a Catwoman that was anything but a feminist icon. Her sister's keeper features the same violence against sex workers that, unfortunately, defined many Catwoman stories at the time, though it gave a greater sense of sympathy and tenderness to its subject matter, highlighting vulnerability and hinting towards a need for decriminalization. While the story features graphic violence against women, it's from the perspective of a writer that clearly empathizes with the victims. That said, the virgin horror dichotomy between Selena and her sister the nun is overpoweringly literal and the story is dark and brutal. Newell admitted to not spending enough time on the book and attempting to appease a certain direction that DC wanted the character to go. The take proved to be unpopular and when Catwoman reemerged with her own solo book shortly thereafter, the tone was significantly lighter. One of the most important themes of Newell's work at DC and beyond was her interest in social justice. The political edge of her writing was ahead of its time. Stylistically, it was this willingness to approach complex themes of morality that makes her work stand apart. Newell's characters often found themselves battling the same feeling of helplessness one experiences as just another cog in a great machine. Narrative staples of DC Comics in the 80s included a depressive acceptance of violence and malaise, while Newell's writing emphasized speaking truth to power and putting one's career and reputation on the line in the pursuit of the greater good. One of the writer's most memorable works was the obsessively bleak Lois Lane two-parter, When It Rains, God is Crying. Like Wonder Woman, Lois Lane had once been a symbol of feminism before storylines and censorship of the 50s had reduced her to a sexist stereotype. Meanwhile, DC itself was leading into Crisis on Infinite Earths, an early company-wide retcon which would reimagine the origins and occasionally even the ethical stances of its superheroes. Despite presenting a much more complex and interesting take on Lois Lane, When It Rains, God is Crying was immediately erased from continuity right as it saw publication. Lois was then reimagined as a brassy, no-nonsense journalist with an overriding interest in Superman. And Newell's vision of a more complicated, troubled character vanished into the ether. Still, despite her incredibly brief tenure in the DC Universe, this Lois Lane remains one of the most interesting takes on the character. The story gives us a Lois whose interest in Clark Kent and Superman has sharply declined, and her disdain for his former and then current lover Lana Lang reached its peak. Bored with her current date, Lois leaves a party to trail a car and ends up finding a crime scene, accidentally viewing the body of a young girl who had been kidnapped and murdered. Traumatized and obsessive, she pushes against her editor to get him to approve a story focusing on child abduction and the pain of grieving parents. This Lois Lane was fascinating, uncompromising, and spiraling. In the end, her enemy Lana Lang reveals that she'd been pregnant, but lost her child while overseas, causing Lois to consider her on a more deeply personal level, and creating a surprising truce between two women that, since their very first appearances together, had been subject to a feud reminiscent of Betty and Veronica fighting over Archie. In 1986, Newell contributed a couple of pages to the anthology Heroes for Hunger which featured many big-name creators and was a benefit for African famine relief. In 1990, she contributed a story to Choices, a pro-choice benefit comic anthology for the National Organization for Women, 
emphasizing her long-standing belief in pro-choice work. Although Newell hasn't written comics in some time, she did occasional work as a columnist, offering feedback and opinion pieces on contemporary comics starting in 2011. She penned a regular feature for Comic Mix, during which she discussed some of the struggles that had led her to quit comics for good. Newell mentioned in one column that she had received a long and aggressive letter from a fellow writer who she declined to name. The letter included many misogynistic insults, insisting that she was a bad writer who only got to work due to what he perceived to be a tendency on her part to dress provocatively. At the time, Newell took the letter at face value, burned the missive, and resolved to leave the industry after completing the book she was working on at the time. In her own assessment, modern feminist movements have given her cause to re-examine the situation and see it for what it was. While it's increasingly clear to creators and fans of comics that these accusations are reflective of a misogynistic outlook, in the time women who spoke out against such things were gaslit and ostracized. The continuing hostility directed at women in comics was in its early stages, as was the support system now in place for dealing with such aggression. Newell didn't have the backing or protection that many female creators share today to increase knowledge of these power dynamics that so negatively affect women in the industry. She felt targeted and alone and had been given ample cause to doubt her abilities as a writer by male-dominated industry and fandom. Losing her love for writing in the process, Newell refocused on her career in nursing and left comics completely. In the mid-1990s, she briefly returned when approached by Marvel for work, but as an editor and fill-in scripter. Eventually, the instability of freelancing led her to leaving entirely to focus on her significantly more stable career in the nursing field. Today, many years later, Newell has stated a willingness to return to comics, citing a genuine love for the medium and a great deal of remorse for not sticking harder to her guns and paving a stronger path. However, in the same breath, she added that in the mid-90s struggles with depression paired with her troubling experiences in the comics industry had left her unwilling to write for quite a long time. Though regret is indeed a many-faceted thing, considering how many female creators have been forced to leave the industry since for similar reasons, it's unlikely that quote-unquote not sticking to her guns more was the real problem. In a 2016 interview with Comicsverse, Gail Simone states, Com is what kind of brought me back into reading comics. And um, people were asking me, well, why don't more girls and women read comics? And I started thinking about it, and I started realizing that a lot of my famous my favorite female characters had had these horrible things happen to them just so that the male characters could stare off in the sunset and vow their revenge and then the female character was completely left out of the story at that point. When Gail Simone took over the Wonder Woman series, there was a lot of confusion caused when several media sites referred to her as the first woman writer of Wonder Woman. Confused, Simone corrected that she was the first ongoing writer, not the first writer, to only later realize that Newell's work had actually predated her run. For Simone's part, she was empathetic and not wanting to take credit for anything she didn't do. She also lamented that the media sites that had made the mistake had failed to run corrections when the error was called out. Simone later conducted an interview with Mindy Newell in her Five Questions series, which is still available to read online and is fascinating for its insight on Newell's Wonder Woman. Also, Newell curses up a storm and lets her frustrations fly, and it's pretty great. Many women have left the comics industry due to the exhaustion and despair from dealing with rampant, targeted sexist harassment and ceaseless microaggressions. Paired with the already exhausting pitfalls of freelancing, that harassment cannot be forgotten if we are to move forward. There are many women who will never work in comics again 
after having undergone months or years of abuse, not to mention gaslighting from editors, fans, and peers alike. Newell's story is triumphant, as it is the tale of a woman who broke into a male-dominated industry. But that doesn't erase the problems she faced within it. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Wire Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Sarah Sentry and narrated and produced by Cher Martinetti. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at scififangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at scififangirls. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.